Benjamin Fell thought he knew what he was getting into when he bought a house in Milesburg that could charitably be called a handyman special. Then he started to peel away old layers of paint, paneling, and wallpaper. The fireplace started to tilt to the one side, and that pulled the whole house about six inches over on the top. Benjamin did what you'd expect someone to do with a crooked house that was structurally unsound. So I just abandoned it. Until he did the unexpected. A few years later, he returned to the crooked house, and he is literally turning it into a work of art. Right here dead center. Hi, I'm Katie O'Toole from the Center County Historical Society. Benjamin Fell was born in Allentown, but he's moved around a lot in his 40-some years. I mention that because it goes to the heart of his Crooked House project. What is home? It's not, in my view, about, you know, stopping the rain from hitting your head. When I go and talk about, you know, my home, I talk about, you know, my friends, my family, you know, the colors there, and just a lot of different things. The Crooked House Project is about the essence of home. And I'll get into that in a minute. But before it was a work of art, it was an actual bricks-and-mortar enterprise. One that went badly, and not due to lack of experience or talent on Benjamin's part. Benjamin graduated from Penn State in architecture and eventually landed in downtown Philadelphia, where he bought and restored a 100-year-old carriage house. I fixed it up and lived there for about two, two, three years, and then that's when I sold it. The Philadelphia venture had interested him enough that when he came back to Penn State for a master's degree, he decided to do it again. He just needed to find the right house. In the architecture department, there was a sign on the wall. The administrative assistants there had, it was her father's home. And then I just came down here and, you know, was interested in buying another place, fixing it up and and selling it. So I came down here and bought it at auction. When Benjamin says here, he's talking about Milesburg, specifically Market Street, about a block from Center Street. That's where Abigail Miles' home was built, probably sometime in the 1850s. You might have heard of Abigail's uncle, Colonel Samuel Miles. He was the Revolutionary War officer, industrialist, land speculator, and the town planner for whom Milesburg is named. His extended family is responsible for much of the early settlement in what is now Center County. Then there was Abigail's other uncle, Richard Miles. Her house might not have been built where it was if Uncle Richard and some other town leaders had gotten their way back in 1800. That's the year Center County was formed from parts of Huntington, Lycoming, Mifflin, and Northumberland counties. According to some early histories, several towns vied for the honor of becoming the seat of the new county. Milesburg and Belfont were the leading contenders. Milesburg town leaders believed they had the strongest claim. For starters, theirs was the only town in the new county that had a post office. More important, Milesburg was at the so-called head of navigation, thanks to Bald Eagle Creek. The creek is a tributary of the West Branch Susquehanna River, so canoes and flatboats could journey northeast from Milesburg to Lock Haven, and from there all the way to Baltimore and other East Coast ports. By contrast, Belfont's Spring Creek was too shallow to be navigated. 
But some prominent citizens, including Joseph Harris and Ironmaster John Dunlop, outmaneuvered their Milesburg neighbors. It happened one day after a heavy rainstorm. According to historian John Blair Lynn, the conspirators took advantage of the creek's unusually high water level. They hitched a team of horses to a flatboat and loaded the boat with some old furniture that they had borrowed for the occasion. Now, you can't see the air quotes around the word borrowed, but I think that Mr. Lynn wanted us to know that no sale of goods actually took place. They pulled the team of horses and dragged the boat up Spring Creek to Belfont's High Street. Immediately upon arrival, they sent a messenger to state officials with an affidavit in which they attested that the first boat of the season with freight aboard has arrived in Belfont. This statement was meant to serve as evidence that Belfont, not Milesburg, was at the head of navigation. It's very likely that the boat dragged up the stream by Dunlop and Harris was the first and last boat to reach Belfont by water, at least until a canal system was constructed some decades later. But the ploy was enough to win Belfont the county seat. No surprises then that Belfont became a cradle of lawyers and politicians. Meanwhile, folks in Milesburg had been sure of their claim to the county seat, so sure that they had laid out the town with a large square at the intersection of Center and Market Streets. It was where they had intended to place the county courthouse. Instead, it remained a largely open green space, eventually dotted by some houses. One of the houses on Market Street actually predated plans for the courthouse. It belonged to Hannah Green. She was Abigail's sister, and her home has a colorful history. Her husband died in 1798, leaving her with a young child. She opened her home as a tavern. In an era when women rarely had their own businesses, she made use of her only major asset, her house, to support herself and her son. A primary requirement to hold a tavern license was the capacity to stable horses, so she presumably had a barn or stables as well. Then, when a Baptist conference was established in 1821, Hannah once again opened her doors, this time offering her home as the meeting place of the new congregation. To say the least, it was unusual to have a tavern run by a woman become the place of worship for those early Baptists. Today, Hannah's Meeting House is the headquarters of the Milesburg Historical Society. And just across the street is, or was, the home occupied by her sister, Abigail Miles. It was the home that in the 21st century would come to be called the Crooked House. Now, the house wasn't exactly crooked when Benjamin first started his restoration. But it wasn't exactly straight either. So there was already a big sag in the roof. And then over time, the sill plate at the door had already rotted. So it was, it was starting to, to sink. And uh, once I removed a lot of the material from the inside that was keeping it together, it, you know, it started to move quicker. And then... and then he began to realize that his restoration project was proceeding in exactly the opposite direction. Instead of getting sturdier, the house was tilting further than ever. In 30 days, you know, I'd already dumped maybe 10,000 into it. And I you know, said, this is enough. It was a tough decision, but it was the right one. 
Yet even as the house crumbled beneath his fingers, Benjamin was intrigued. At the Milesburg site, he walked me through the foundation, which is dominated by a big fireplace. No walls, no roof, just a fireplace. This fireplace was covered with plaster. We had no idea it was in here. And when we were doing the restoration, we were pulling away the different layers to get to the, the good structure, which didn't end up being there. But underneath that plaster, we discovered this fireplace. This was all bricked over the front with the, the fireplaces, and this had filled up with soot. And it, was, it was a mess. Uh, this area here was, there was a coal stove in here the last owner had, so he punched this hole in it. That one up there, I believe, was a, a flue for a, a potbelly stove that would have heated this area, or you could have you know, cooked on it. And then up above on the second level, which you know, everybody would have slept, climbed on top of each other and just stayed warm up there. You know, that might have been for another pot belly stove. Um, on the back of this would have been the summer kitchen. And then on the front here, you know, where we removed the, the back of the wall, you know, we found the, the Waddle and Dobble insulation. For the benefit of those who know as little about construction as I do, Waddle and Daub is a building material that was once commonly used to make walls. It's largely been replaced by plaster and drywall. But its use in architecture dates back to prehistoric times. Waddle is made up of woven strips of wood or sticks, or sometimes loose panels that are slotted between timber frames. Daub, that's D-A-U-B, is a mixture of several materials that might include mud, clay, sand, crushed stone, hay, even dung. Materials that together will form a sticky substance that is applied to the wattle to bind, stabilize, and reinforce the construction. As Benjamin stripped away the layers that have been added over the years, he got down to that original wattle and daub. And that's not all he found. You can see they stacked a piece of wood and then packed mud in it. Wood, mud, wood, mud. And then as they would pack the, the mud in there, they left handprints. He showed me strips of wattle and daub where the handprints are still visible. There we saw the handprints of the original builders of the, the house, which was really cool. Those handprints? They added a new perspective to the structure, a human dimension. This wasn't about architecture, and it clearly was no longer a restoration project. So what was it? I was just interested in a simple home. Why not memorialize the home? It doesn't have to be a federal-style home. It doesn't have to be a Greek-style building. It's just a building. And it was about the people that lived there and the place. He couldn't save the house, but he could save the concept of a home. He decided to create a sculpture based on the crooked house that would evoke the concept Benjamin isn't particularly interested in Abigail Miles, but the simplicity of her house appealed to him. You know, it has a door, three windows, square footprint, and you know, the, the roof on it, and that was it. Imagine the front of a house as a six-year-old might draw it. You know, a square with a triangle on top, and inside the square, some smaller squares for windows, and a rectangle for a door. That's essentially what the facade of the crooked house looks like. Benjamin's plan was to make a mold of the facade that he would cast in concrete and erect on the site of the original house. The first time I met Benjamin was in the Sutton Building in Belfont. It's part of the historic Sutton properties, 
that for well over a century have housed industries such as lumber, petroleum, and metals. It's also the site of the old Belfont Car Manufacturing Company that produced freight cars for the Pennsylvania Railroad in the 19th century. Today, it's more like a huge warehouse, which means it's not a very good place to make audio recordings. But it seemed to be pretty ideal for the many unrelated and eclectic projects that were underway on the day I visited. SMS is over there where you see the light. I don't know if you know Tally Fisher. She's a sculptor, local sculptor. She has some space over there. Somebody's making futons, mass production down at the bottom. Beside us, an x-ray machine on a crane was examining a large piece of industrial-looking equipment to make sure all the welds were good. I had no idea what it was. The lights were dim, but when the x-ray machine stopped, the lights came up, and it was easier to see the broad wooden pallet in front of me. It held the facade of the crooked house. This was cut off the, the house, secured in a way that could all stay together as one component. Benjamin said that so matter-of-factly that he could be talking about taking apart and putting together a Lego house. But we're talking about the entire front of a house. Sure, it was a small house, but it was still a two-story house. The facade, and therefore the piece that he's turning into a life-size sculpture, is about 16 by 22 feet. It took a feat of engineering and a small army of volunteers to dismantle the house without damaging the facade. After dismantling it, Benjamin needed a big area to work on the sculpture. He used the parking lot of the local fire hall temporarily, before bringing the facade to the Sutton building. Like everything about this project, transporting the facade involved some complex logistics. I decided to cut it in half, you can see that line down the middle. Right here. So then I could put it on two trailers. It was March when I met with Benjamin at the Sutton building. He had scheduled a time in late April to make a rubber mold of the facade. The technique involved using a spray-on material that hardens quickly once it hits the surface, preserving the wooden structure exactly as it is, warts and all. Or in this case, since we're talking about wood, warps and all. So within like five seconds, the reaction happens, but within that five seconds, the viscosity of it's very thin. So it you know, works its way into all of these you know, cracks and crevices. And you're gonna see all like the distress of the old facade. See, like, the nails here that are sticking up. You know, there's a hole here. It's the opposite. You know, here it's, you know, going to be indented in. And you can see, like, here in the wood. It's hard to see right now, but that's a, a lot going on right here. Where the wood cracked away. You know, all of that, you know, is going to show up in the finished concrete. And then the next step to that is I have to make what they call the mother mold. The mother mold is made of a rigid fiberglass. He'll put his formwork around the sides of it and then fill it in with concrete. It's a painstaking project and an expensive one that he's financing through donations, crowdsourcing, grants, and mainly his own pocket. Later that day, we went to the site of the Crooked House in Milesburg. The foundation of the house has been excavated and the hearth and fireplace have been fully restored. In all honesty, it would have been easier simply to tear down the fireplace along with the other compromised walls and the roof. But since this had become a project about the meaning of home, 
It made sense to Benjamin to keep this central part of the structure intact. The fireplace brought families together for warmth and food. But it also held the house itself together. I mean, it held it up in two ways. It was like the spirit of the fireplace or the hearth, I think, kept this building were, you know, in place. And then at the same time, the, the physical strength of it kept it standing. I mean, it was just mammoth. I, mean, I, I don't know why they would put a fireplace that large in a, a small home. It doesn't make sense unless the owners were masons or something. It wasn't just that the fireplace was so big. I mean, one of the interesting things about this was, like, the the fireplace and the house were integrated together. Like, the wood of the, the house you know, was going right into the, the stone and the, the mortar. So as the wood rotted in areas, that also caused you know, the house to fall and the fireplace to, to deteriorate because the wood was supporting the stone. But in order to restore the fireplace, I couldn't just take down the house or the fireplace would fall down. So I had to you know, cut away a piece of the house, repair the fireplace, cut away the piece of the house. So what you're seeing here is the fireplace completely cut away from the house. Although it's not part of the display, if you visit the Crooked House site, you'll probably notice the building in the background. That's where Benjamin lives. He built it to be his home and workshop once he realized that he wasn't going to restore the Crooked House. Although I doubt he wants to open it to the public since it is his home, after all, it's kind of a living museum. He has a one-third scale model of the project in his living room, which he dual purposes as a clothes rack. On one wall, he has plastic bags filled with artifacts that he's collected from the site and the surrounding area. It was in the wall of the house down in the basement, a baby cup. That was discovered in there. Oh, it's so delicate. How did that survive? Well, I think, like, to protect, you know, the, the spirit of the baby or something, or the new, newborn child in the house, they would bury them in the wall or over a door or something. I can't even remember where I found it. It just kind of, like, fell out when I was digging. Benjamin is quick to spot the things that fall out while digging, or that he finds along the bank at the creek. He sees these dirt cake shards of ceramic or old bottle caps or a child's metal toy. With the eye of both an artist and an archaeologist, he collects these bits and pieces of past lives and thinks about the people who might have used or owned them. It makes sense that Benjamin's Crooked House project is an outgrowth of his master's degree in fine arts. In the process of pursuing that degree... I put together that model and then presented it to the borough, presented it to my thesis advisors, and developed the project you know, while I was in school. And then once I graduated is when I started to implemented. Benjamin says the borough of Milesburg has been very patient with the Crooked House project. You know, they approve the, the project and you know, I resubmit drawings and get extensions on the different permits as I move through it because originally it was only going to take you know, a year and a half and here we are six years later. I asked him if the borough would eventually take ownership of the Crooked House, especially given that the site is sometimes referred to as the Milesburg Historic Park. I'll own it right now. I mean, I'd be happy if another entity would take ownership of it, but the the issue with that is always maintenance. Who's going to pay for the maintenance? How is the maintenance going to occur? So if somebody, another responsible entity, a nonprofit or the borough wanted to, you know, own it and could maintain it, you know, I'd be, you know, open to that. But, I mean, I'll take care of it, and, you know, the spirit of it is for the community. So it's, even though I own the property, it's, you know, spirited so that everybody can come there and you know see this house it's a universal you no know, idea 
It may be universal, but it's also abstract. I wondered if he had thought about that. He had. You know, intended to put, you know, something, you know, into an environment that art is typically not accessible. It's an educational piece also, but out here in rural Pennsylvania, abstract art isn't very common. And we have the Doughboy statue down the road, which isn't, you know, abstract. It's very easy to understand. Whereas something like this takes a little time, but it's also at the same time so universal that the abstraction of it is not that much. And that's what I like about this sculpture. And here's what I like about this sculpture. Along the way to creating it, Benjamin Fell has done more than simply save a historic structure from total obliteration. In the process of building a memorial to the home, he has formed his own home of sorts. If you think of home broadly as community, this has happened from the get-go. When I first got here, you know, when I was restoring it, it's like my neighbors showed up in my yard helping me. Like, it was almost strange. It's like, what are you doing in my yard helping me? <laughs> like, so from day one, there were, you know, people working in my yard to help out. And then, you know, it just developed from there. I needed, you know, an excavator. I needed a tractor. And then my friend that I made in town here brought over an excavator and started digging and then eventually just, you know, left it here. You know, it's his, and he picks it up when he needs it, and half the year it's here and half the year it's over there, but it's still in my yard right now. And here's what he told me at the Sutton building when I asked him how much he pays to rent a space there. And he offered it to me, you know, basically you know, asked me how much I could afford. I said, well, nothing. <laughs> you know, I'm doing this out of pocket, plus anything I can raise, fundraising. He said, well, whatever you can afford. And then you know, I told him how much, and he said, fine. I went to write him the check. He's like, don't worry about it. When the money comes in, when you get your money, just pay me. So I give him a little bit each week. And when he had to move the facade from Milesburg but didn't yet have the Sutton building option? So some locals helped me move it over to the um, fire hall. <laughs> so it ended up in the fire hall. <laughs> There's like this story that goes along with that, you know, as it travels along, as I meet people. It's not like I'm, I set out to do a community project. It's, it's become a community project. And then there's the family part. Both his mother and father routinely come to town from the Lancaster area to help out however they can. At his home, he shows me a photo album of the project and points out his father in one of the pictures. That's my dad lifting the fireplace. Oh, that's your dad? Yeah. Well, and then Has he, he been part of the project oh, from the start? Uh, very much so, yeah. He's always um, been handy, but and he's just strong. I mean, he's tough. He's going to be you know, 79, and I, he can work just as hard as I can. I mean, he gets down in the pit and you know, pushes me aside and grabs a shovel and starts digging. I mean. And there are others. Through crowdsourcing, he's raised almost $15,000 for the project. People that have helped over the years, we've had musicians at the events. Um. The events include the open houses he holds regularly so that the public can come to watch this work in progress. Visitors are invited to leave their handprints, just as those long-ago builders did. Uh, play on these handprints that were put in the, the Waddle and Dob. You know, local community members or anybody will come in here and in these clay panels leave their, their handprints or some kind of memento, and we'll fire those clay tiles, and then we're going to install those on the back of the the sculpture, so there'll be this mural of, of handprints, of these memories. Benjamin calls the sculpture and the area around it Homecoming Park, 
He envisions it as a place where people might contemplate the sculpture, sit in front of the fireplace, leave their handprints. And people will come by and stop and talk about the places they call home. Benjamin's vision of a memorial to the home has occupied much of the last 13 years of his life. That's 13 years spent in a failed restoration, a dogged dismantling, and a careful recreation of a crooked old house. And here's what makes me think he's really onto something. That was the oddest thing. We joke about that. Like, I don't, nobody has said, are you nuts? <laughs> We've had a really positive reception of it. For more on the Crooked House Project, or to find out how you can get involved, go to thecrookedhouse.net. Or better yet, visit the site yourself. It's on Market Street in Milesburg. And keep in mind, while the idea of home may be universal, the Crooked House is right here, dead center. Our theme music is titled Coffee Shop. It was composed by David Zeste and it's licensed by Creative Commons. Additional music was composed by Kevin McLeod and is likewise licensed by Creative Commons. For a list of resources used in researching this episode, go to deadcenterpa.org. If you enjoyed today's program, subscribe to Dead Center on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your media.